When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rocky Mountain Bicycles is turning 40 this year, and to celebrate, the brand is giving Singletracks listeners a chance to win one of five limited edition prize packs. Visit Singletracks.com slash Rocky Mountain 40 by August 31st, 2021, and enter your name and a valid email address to be considered. One entry per person, no purchase necessary, and void where prohibited. Click on the show notes for a link to the contest page and to get more information. Happy anniversary, Rocky Mountain. This episode of the Single Tracks Podcast is sponsored by Rocky Mountain. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Sean Madsen. Sean is WTB's saddle category manager and is an expert in cycling biomechanics with more than 24 years of experience. Over his career, he's studied and taught bike fitting to thousands worldwide, and he's helped create many innovative saddle concepts while working with some of the sport's top athletes. Thanks for joining us, Sean. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I know you've been with WTB for a little while now, obviously not your whole career, but I wanted to start out by just kind of giving an overview of, of where WTB is now and sort of their place in the saddle market. So how and when did WTB get into bike saddles and then specifically mountain bike saddles? Well, again, WTB is uh, a new company for me. I've only been there about a year or so, but um, historically they've been around since uh, the mid eighties. The main saddle designer was a, a gentleman named Mark Slate. He's also one of the founders of the company. And so they've really been in saddle design from the beginning and they're born out of Mill Valley and, and, that whole Mount Tam era, hmm. the repack rides and those kind of guys. And, and Mark was involved with that scene back in the 80s. So they've really been at the birth of mountain biking from right when it started. And so that's kind of where he came out of. And Mark is a heck of a creative kind of tinkerer. He likes to like hmm. very hands-on in his, in his creation process of working with saddles. And, you know, a lot of his early prototypes were made of wood and, oh, wow. you know, really just yeah, he really just kind of figured out through a iterative process kind of what worked and what didn't work and how riders were were there and comfy and you know working towards you know making a really comfortable saddle designed towards the experience that that he wanted to have which was mountain biking. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously bike saddles existed before the 80s and before WTB. Um, but it sounds like, you know, this was like a new take on saddles in some ways, right? Mountain biking was a new sport. Was there something that was like wrong with the existing saddles or something that was missing in terms of like what people wanted from an off-road saddle? Sure, sure. And yeah, he definitely, like I said, was very interested in, uh, in making something that was comfortable and, and worked for him. And, you know, like a, he for an off-road saddle. And, um, so, you know, he, he tended to go a little bit more thickly padded than what you would find in more of the, 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 you know, road racing style of, of saddle that was available at the time, especially because those bikes, you know, 
26 inch wheels, uh, with super hard PSI, you know, no suspension, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah. they were looking, they were looking for whatever kind of comfort they could get. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's talk in general about how bike saddles are constructed. Walk us through the anatomy of a bike saddle and let's start at the cover. That's the outside part, the part that's most visible at the top. So yeah, tell us about, about saddle anatomy. Yeah. So, you know, starting at the top and looking at the saddle cover, covers are, are really an integral part. Obviously they all play a big role. The, the part of the cover that, you know, you want to have it so that it obviously uh, protects the saddle. It encloses the foam. That's kind of its function. Mm -hmm. But it also, there's a interface component to the rider. So you can't, if it's too slippery or if it's too sticky, uh, those are, those are problems. And so some, some covers yeah. have more grip to them than others. And different riders actually prefer slightly different cover materials or different slip factors. A lot of the, the hmm, folks that like to move around a lot on their saddle prefer a less grippy, more slick, slick surface. And those that tend to stay planted, mm -hmm. uh, and there are riders that do both, that those that tend to stay planted like uh, a little bit more grippy. It helps them to stay in that one spot on the saddle. But then after that, it's got to yeah. it's got to provide protection. You know, a lot of our uh, almost all of our saddles WTB has corner panel protection for scuff guards. So when the bike crashes or you lay it down, you're not tearing up the saddle. That's a, a big another big com consideration for a mountain bike saddle over necessarily a road saddle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's talk now about the padding. And you know, you said that. Some of the early saddles, what they were working to do is add a little bit more padding for mountain biking. What are the different materials that are used for padding in saddles these days? The overwhelming choice right now is foam, for sure. That's uh, an EVA type of foam that is injection molded on top of a base. That is easily made. It's 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 very widespread. Now, there are some additives that companies will do that they'll do dual density so they'll do two different densities of foam to create softer or harder pockets but those are fairly limited in what they can do they can do you know basically like a circular spot or, or just kind of a, a an area of a different durometer or a different density of foam and they'll also do that with gel so uh, companies will will put a gel pad most will do it on the top of the foam so that that's what the rider feels more immediately. Right. Some will actually do it like on our, on our speed saddle. We've got three gel pockets, but they're actually towards the base of the foam, which create hmm. a nice flex characteristic of the foam. Yeah. The challenge with gel, and this is a, an interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people get, I think gel is a liquid, right? And so what do we mm -hmm. know about liquids? Liquids are incompressible, meaning you can't it squish it. So, so what happens when gel, when you sit on it, is that it squishes to other areas that you don't want it. It doesn't just compress. Yeah. Foam, it's, foam itself is, is air pockets, right? And so as you squish foam, it actually will compress, but the gel won't. And the interesting thing is gel passes what we call the thumb test, right? When a, a rider is there at the saddle wall and they're looking to pick out a saddle and they stick their thumb in it, it feels really soft and squishy. Right. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's going to be great. That's when I sit on that's going to be great. 
But it doesn't always work that way because a lot of times, especially the thickly gelled saddles, the real comfort-oriented ones, that gel squishes into other areas where you don't necessarily want it to go when you're actually sitting on the saddle. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it seems like you tend to see a lot of uh, new riders, especially look for those like gel saddles because like you said they feel really good in the store and you know i've even seen plenty of folks who get like a saddle cover that's like made out of gel and they'll try to put that on to make the saddle more comfortable um and i think yeah we'll definitely talk more about comfort factors uh later in the interview okay so we've talked about the cover and the padding uh what's next in this saddle sandwich that we're talking about well then you really go down to uh, the base and the base material, what that's made out of. And mm. the base is the firm structure that the rails are bonded to. That actually provides most of the support of what you're feeling out of a saddle. Okay. And those are made out of a variety of materials. Most common and most in the lower end saddles will be just be a polypropylene base. And then it'll be an injection molded polypropylene base. Okay. As we work up into more of the stiffer materials, you'll get a, a nylon base, you'll get a glass-filled nylon base, which is even stiffer from that, and varying levels of that, all the way up through to a full carbon fiber base, which will be an interesting – now, carbon fiber is a great, interesting material to work with because you can tune, just like you can in a frame, you can tune how the base flexes and where it flexes. Oh, right. And so you can make it pretty stiff. You can make it pretty stiff, but you can also put in flex characteristic to it, which is pretty cool. But of course, it comes at a much higher price point. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And then you mentioned the rails then attached to that base. Um, and we see a number of different materials used for the rails. Typically, are those going to be like an alloy uh, material, like on the lower end saddles? Absolutely. The, so they're going to start at steel. Um, and that's where you see a lot of the OEM type of, of saddles that come on on bikes. There'll be a steel rail, and then they'll go up to a chromoly. Okay. Chrome molybdenum is the next level up. Some right, saddles will then have a stainless steel option above chromoly, hmm. but that's somewhat rare. And then they go to titanium, and there's actually two versions of titanium, which is sometimes uh, not very well called out. You could have a hollow tie or a solid tie, and then all the way up to, again, carbon fiber. Now, all of these materials act in different ways. So up to the steel and chromoly, uh, there's really a weight difference between them. There's not really a flex characteristic between them. When you start to get into titanium, now we do have a lot more flexible material out of the rail. So some of that ride quality, that flex pattern that you feel out of the saddle can be come out, come out of the rail. Now, carbon is generally very stiff. They actually don't want those rails to flex very much at all because um, they're not big enough to handle a, a lot of flex. So they, the carbon rails will be pretty stiff, but also pretty light. Okay. So one of the big questions I want to ask you about and something I know a lot of people struggle with and understanding is how does bike saddle sizing work? seems like a lot of brands have different sizes to choose from. So how does somebody know what size they need? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. And sometimes it can be very challenging. And prior to um, a lot of the work that I did developing sizing, 
with my previous work, um, we didn't really know. And everyone kind of picked a as narrow a saddle as possible. But the reality is mm. the, you know, the human crotch is not designed to bear weight, but we're going to sit on a bike seat. <laughs> right. Right. But we're going to sit on a bike seat. So how do we do that? How do we tackle that challenge? And the goal is, you know, what can bear our weight is bony structure. That's what's designed. Our bodies are designed to sit on our bones. And so we want to make sure that we are uh, supporting our mass on our on our bone structure and not our soft tissue. And so that's, you know, that's kind of the first goal is, okay, I want to sit on my bones. Now, if I'm going to sit on my bones, what are those bones called? There's, you know, sit bones or ischial tuberosities, if we're going to be detailed about it. And those ischial tuberosities are very variable. So if I go in and measure, and I've done this, this was actually my master's thesis for physiology was measuring this, the variety, the variety out there is anywhere between 80 millimeters apart and 160 millimeters apart. So that's a really wide span, Whoa. right? That's a really wide span of, of people. And, you know, uh-huh. that's where, that's when, when we started realizing that, when I published that thesis and then companies started looking at that and saying, oh, well, that's why a lot of people have trouble with saddles and some people <laughs> yeah. don't is that we were making all our saddles, and this was industry-wide, we were making all of our saddles for one type of person. Hmm. And guess what? People aren't one type of people. There's a huge variety. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't just look at somebody either and say, okay, like you have wide or narrow zip bones. This is something like internal. It, uh, uh, yes, absolutely. The, the variety out there, it, it, there's no correlation between hip width between pretty much anything and where these sit bones are. I've measured actually one of the widest people I've ever measured at 165 millimeters apart was an elite female runner that had this boyish, you know, figure of like a 12-year-old boy. So very slender, very narrow, but her sit bones were very wide. I've also measured, you know, NFL football players that you know, were massive individuals that had sit bones that were around 90 millimeters that were very narrow. So you really, you really can't tell. I mean, yes, those are sometimes the outliers and the bell-shaped curves of averages, but you really can't tell. And the goal isn't to, to hit an average, right? Like, you know, one of the analogies I always draw is that the average man's foot is uh, a 42 and a half. Mm-hmm. Does that mean everyone wears 42 and a half shoes? <laughs> right. No. You know, we want to we want to custom tailor the experience for each rider and each rider wants to know what what works for them and what works for your buddy doesn't necessarily work for you. Right. And that's okay. It's just figuring out, oh, okay, I need to support on my sit bones. I don't want to you know, I shouldn't be going numb. I shouldn't be having, you know, issues where I can't sit on the saddle for an extended period of time. So I need to support those sit bones and I need to get a saddle up underneath those bones that help support that. So measuring is the gold standard. Uh, there's many different ways of measuring. We can measure with, uh, you know, foam pads. They're, they all have some variety of error, 
you know, there's there's a couple tools out there that are more digital that that are actually really accurate. When I did my initial work in all this, it was actually x-raying oh, wow. uh, and correlating a lot of this stuff to x-ray. So mm-hmm. we're able to see some some very detailed-oriented stuff. But that's not you know plausible in a bike shop setting. Obviously, you don't want to be doing that for for average riders. Yeah. So you know, g- getting a measurement is is the first start. And like I said, there's lots of different ways to do it. You know, working with somebody who's done a bunch of measurements so that they can be more repeatable and more accurate in their measuring will help. Mm-hmm. But again, you want to. The goal is to sit on your sit bones, not have any midline pressure. And then from there, there's a whole nother host of, of considerations because that's just one consideration of, of choosing the right saddle and that'll help yeah. you get to the right size. Some of the other considerations are soft tissue, right? And, and not meaning perineal soft tissue, but more like range of motion, flexibility, mm-hmm. all these things that can happen and, and influence you, the way you sit on the bike and the, and how you're using the bike. Also lend a, a, a way of how you're rotating your pelvis. So if you can imagine somebody who's got really good overall flexibility and they go to, you know, they're standing up and they go to put their, touch their toes and they can put their palms flat on the floor and their back is, you know, bent really far over. And that's, you know, their pelvis rotates really far. That's going to, influence how they sit on their saddle versus somebody who goes to touch their toes and can barely touch their knees, right? Yeah, makes sense. And so that that and and it's really not about their back, it's more about how much their pelvis rotates. And so we think about and how does it why does that influence riding is that when you pedal hard and we've all done this, you know, we have to climb up a steep hill, you know, that steep fire road or that steep grunty climb what do we do? We, mm-hmm. you know, we, our torso comes way down. It's like, we're almost eating our stem, right? Our stems right up in our face. And we're, and some of it is to keep the front wheel down, but a lot of it is actually muscle recruitment. So when we, when we do this, what we're trying to do, our bodies inherently, and our brains are doing this, we're trying to recruit more glutes. Glutes are the uh, strongest single muscle in our body and they're used for hip extension, mm-hmm. right? So if I think about, um, the pedal stroke, most of our power comes out of our glutes and our quads from pushing down, right? We push right down on the pedals. Mm-hmm. And in a maximal situation, in a really hard effort, our bodies automatically find that position where we can, where we can grab that power. You know, another, another good analogy of visual is doing a squat, right? When you put the weight bar on your shoulders and you're going to do a squat, how is your back and your pelvis aligned when you're doing that squat? They're kind of tilted forward and your spine is nice and line mm-hmm. and you're using those glutes to push that weight back up. It's the same thing in a pedal stroke. You don't have a, a rounded out spine, you know, and, and kind of slouching when you're trying to do a squat you, that turns off your glutes. But that if you if you have the ability to tilt your pelvis forward and and really recruit those glutes, that's going to influence obviously how you're sitting on the saddle and where your pelvis is contacting the saddle. So that's that's where we come into saddle shape, and this is you know a whole other whole other aspect of uh, choosing a saddle is you've got width, but then you also have shape. So mm-hmm. saddle shapes some are really flat. And some have some good contour to them. 
and how do we choose between the two? And that's a tough that's a tough call, and that's where that's where the the overall flexibility and stability uh, come into play. So if you have good flexibility, if you have good core stability, those types of things, you generally will tend towards a flatter shape because that shape will allow you to tilt your pelvis forward, um, which you have the ability to do. And conversely, if you are a little bit limited in your flexibility and stability, you'll tend to gravitate more towards a contoured shape or more of, you know, if you're viewing it from the side, a contoured shape, there's kind of a hammock in the middle of the saddle. It's kind of a cup. And it also can have some contour from left to right as well. Whereas flatter saddles, looking at them from the front, they're they're not perfectly flat, but they're they're much flatter than a contoured than a contoured saddle as viewed from the side, tip to tail. Uh, and that allows that pelvic freedom. But again, if you don't have that pelvic freedom, then you want more of a cradle, which helps support your pelvis in that existing position. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's so much to think about. I mean, it's crazy that we um, expect so much out of a saddle. I mean, it's got to be able to handle, like you said, all the different shapes and sizes of people, but then also considering all the different like ranges of motion that we go through even in just a single ride, I mean, from the climb to the descent to, you know, pedaling flat. I mean, I'm just blown away that we have even designed saddles that are comfortable. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, so and comfort is also an interesting thing. You know, the, going back to the the differences in, in people and individuals, some people are, have very high tolerances, I guess you could say, or, or they can be very comfortable on things that they shouldn't be very comfortable on that aren't comfortable. Uh, and that's been the problem. And that's been the problem forever, right? Because if we think about product design and especially saddle design, it, it, for way back when it all came from the elite road racer, right? It was all oh, this, these guys can do it. Well, those guys are freaks of nature. You know, I've worked with them for, <laughs> for a decade and they can be in, in what, in a position that most people would not tolerate because, you know, they're just going to do it. And they're, they've got this tolerance that doesn't hurt, you know, and they could say, Oh yeah, I can sit on this thing that is basically a two by four. And, and it, and it doesn't bother me and I'll do it for, you know, 40 hours a week and I'll do it for week out and week out. But that's not normal individuals. You know, normal people are not going to tolerate that level of pain. And it's okay that there, that people, that there is this big variance that, you know, there are people that, uh, I, I ran across a, a rider the other day that we were talking about saddles and she was saying, yeah, I just, I feel that people have saddle issues. They just don't have enough time on the saddle. And I said, well, that's not true actually, because you know, some people doesn't matter how long they spend the saddle, they're never going to tolerate the the wrong saddle. And some people can get away with the wrong saddle, and, and that's okay. It's it's kind of like what's that old fairy tale? You know, some people are the princess and the pea, and others are not, <laughs> and it's okay. You know, it's just right. it's finding the right match for you and building off of that. Yeah. My next question, I mean, it's a bit facetious and, you know, I think maybe the answer is obvious based on our discussion so far, but are more expensive saddles going to be more comfortable for folks? I know some people, you know, they may just be starting out in the sport and they 
you know, have sort of an entry level bike with an entry level saddle and it's uncomfortable and they think, okay, maybe I need to spend more money to get a more comfortable saddle. Is there like a relationship between that in terms of like price and comfort or, um, sounds like it's, it's a lot more than that. It is a lot more than that. Um, you know, the price and comfort, there is a little bit of relationship, but not, not as direct. You get nicer materials, you get nicer foam, you get um, possibly more dialed in flex characteristic of the base. Mm. And I say possibly because a lot of companies don't really consider that. They just make a a poly pro base and go from there. Mm-hmm. But we do at WTB, we, we build in base flex characteristics for different levels of the saddle. Mm-hmm. And so that's important to, um, to dial in and think about. There are riders that enjoy a stiffer saddle and there are riders that enjoy a softer saddle. And that has everything to do with the price point. But hopefully, and, and a lot of companies do this in general too, is that they have the same shape at different price points. And so, you know, you can get the, the carbon version or you can get the Romali version and it's still the same shape. And, that, and hopefully that will work for that rider. You find the shape that works for you and you run with it and you're like, okay, this is the shape that I like. You know, if I want it lighter, then I'll get the carbon version. Uh, if it doesn't matter to me, then I'll get the Romali or the steel version or the tie version. Mm-hmm. whichever works. Now I say it, d- there is some relation because when you get a really cheap saddle, a lot of the, the ones that are truly the comfort oriented saddles, they tend to have a lot more flex characteristic out of the base. They, the base tends to flex a lot more than maybe you want it. And so if the base is flexing a lot and you, the middle of the, the saddle is kind of dropping down, obviously that means the ends, the tip and the tail are coming up. And so that means there can be a lot more perineal pressure or front pressure of the saddle on a, on a cheap saddle because the base is just not stiff enough to hold the rider in one spot. It's flexing too much. I see. Interesting. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll find out if men and women need different saddles and whether cutouts make a difference. Stay tuned. If you haven't already rated and reviewed the Single Tracks podcast in your podcast app, now's the time to do it. We're randomly selecting listener reviews to read on the show. And if we choose yours, you'll get a free Single Tracks hat in the mail. Hit pause right now, write a quick review, and then listen to future episodes to find out if you won yourself a hat. Happy trails. And we're back. So, Sean, some brands offer saddles with a cutout in the middle, but it appears WTB does not. So I'm curious to know what's the idea behind adding a cutout in a saddle? And are there reasons maybe why you, uh, you don't necessarily need one or, or where those might pose an issue? Yeah. So um, cutouts, they do a good job of relieving perineal pressure. and you know, that, again, what I said before, the human crotch is not designed to bear weight. So we want to make sure we're shifting our pressure and our mass and support of our mass out onto the sit bones, which is away from the midline. We want to avoid midline pressure. And cutouts can do a really good job of that. What we try and do at WTB is design our saddles to kind of act like it's got a cutout, even without having a visual cutout. Because of a lot of feedback we've gotten from riders is that, you know, the cutout in a mountain biking environment, especially in a wet mountain biking environment, man, you get a lot of spray and a lot of mud coming up through the middle. And that 
that makes your chamois uncomfortable real quick. Oh, right. So, so we really worked on trying to do that to, to minimize necessarily the, the need or use for cutouts, but they do serve a purpose. And again, if you flip over a, um, almost all of our saddles, there's what we call the comfort zone, which the base has a cutout, but the top sheet and the foam may not. And so it'll kind of act okay. a little bit more like a, like a cutout, but not have a big visual cutout. And there's also, you know, riders that aesthetically don't like the look of a cutout and that's fine, mm-hmm. you know, and that's okay. So we we try and accommodate quite a bit of that. But again, the goal is, is to relieve that midline pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, I was looking at the WTB website recently, and it looks like the Volt is your best-selling saddle. So I'm curious to know why you think that is. Is it the shape of the saddle that that tends to fit a lot of people, or is it sort of the the price point, or or what is it about that that saddle that you think makes it really popular choice for people? The Volt is a great blend of performance and comfort. So, you know, compared to the Silverado, which is our other top selling saddle, it's a little bit more padded. And so that provides a little bit more squish for the riders. It is a a contoured saddle. So it's got uh, a good amount of contour front to back and side to side, which helps hold riders into into that one singular place. And, you know, remember earlier I was talking about the difference between contoured and flat in terms of riders flexibility and stability. Well, if we think about the Silverado, it's a flatter saddle and the Volt is a more contoured saddle. And honestly, if we took a hard look at all of ourselves, how many of us feel like we're really good in our flexibility and stability, right? I I think a lot of people do feel challenged in that department. And so they do tend to gravitate a little bit more towards a contoured saddle, which helps cradle their pelvis and hold them in that kind of one spot. And then the Volt has uh, that little bit more padding, which helps just feel a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. Interesting. Well, what's your, your personal favorite saddle in the WTB line? Which one do you like most in terms of comfort and performance? I am a Silverado rider for sure. I like, I like a flatter, flatter saddle. I, 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 cause I, I know the importance of flexibility and stability. So I work on it all the time to make sure that, uh, that I've got it. But yeah, I, I like the Silverado. I, I do spend quite a bit of time on all of our saddles. Mm-hmm. So it's a good, it's a, a good check to see where they're all at. And obviously we've got uh, uh, constantly working on new designs. So keep an eye out. We might have some coming up. Yeah, cool. I know one of the saddles I recently discovered in the WTB line uh, that feels really good to me is the Coda. And I don't know why that is. Is is there something about that shape maybe that's different from some of the others? Or um, who is that saddle sort of designed for? So the, the Coda is is more of a flat saddle. Um, so it, it's designed with less of that hammock from tip to tail and side to side. It's, it is a little bit more padded than some of the other flat saddles that are out there. So that's, that's again, also gearing towards more of a mountain bike experience there. Some of the other flat saddles that are on the market, they do come from more of a, a road background, so they tend to be stiffer and they tend to be not as as padded as the Coda. But yeah, the Coda does a, a great job of supporting that it, that flat saddle rider. So it's kind of like a 
a Silverado shape with an extra layer, level of padding on it. Okay, cool. Well, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but uh, have to ask it anyway. Do men and women need different saddles? So it is, I do I get this question obviously a ton. Um, the difference between men, there's obviously differences between men and women, but sit bone spacing and sit bone anatomy is not very different between men and women. So if we look at that that range from 80 to 160, there's their bell-shaped curves of averages and you know the average man is about 117 millimeters apart and the average woman is about 128 millimeters apart. But there's so much overlap between them that it's kind of irrelevant as to spacing. So yes, women may gravitate slight to a slightly wider saddle given that. Men might gravitate towards a slightly narrower saddle. But again, there's 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 all kinds of uh, variation there. So measuring and measuring and finding out exactly where your what your sit bones are is the most important. Mm-hmm. And then from there, what we really want to do is again relieve that midline pressure and make sure that we have uh, we're not pressure. Press, pressing perineum, soft tissue, that kind of stuff. And if we can do that, uh, there's not a big variation between the sexes. Yes, women generally have a little bit more flexibility than men. Uh, so that's, and they also can be uh, another term called lordosis. They may have a little bit more tipped felt forward pelvis, which can be a problem sitting on a saddle. But they tend to gravitate more towards a flatter saddle that's got a, a, a more relief in the middle. But the interesting thing that in my career, one of the things that we've, we've that you can do or I've done is you can put a lot of men on women's saddles and not tell them they're a women's saddle and they find it very comfortable. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> but if you put a woman on a man's saddle, a traditional man's saddle, they may go, yeah, I don't like that. Hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, in, in product design, when, I, when I'm messing around with the saddles, I, I, I design it towards a, uh, a female anatomy or a woman's anatomy mm-hmm. and then, you know, introduce it to the man and the man's like, yeah, it feels comfortable. I like it. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so if, you can, if it can pass the, the, the female test, then, you know, you've got something pretty that'll work pretty well for men, too. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things I don't I don't think we explicitly talked about though is saddle length. And I remember reading somewhere maybe in the past that men's and women's tend to prefer different saddle lengths. And you know, the other place that this comes into play, I guess, is recently we're seeing mountain bikers adopting shorter saddle lengths. And so can you talk a little bit about length in terms of like gender differences, if there are one, and then also sort of what this trend towards shorter saddles is all about? <laughs> well, the uh, the trend towards shorter saddles is actually a, a saddle that I developed uh, in my previous work that started this all. Uh, it was 240 millimeters in Oh, cool. Yeah. And the reason we made 240 millimeters in length was that I wanted a saddle. I wanted this concept to still fit within the UCI's cycling rules of which the, you know, pro cycling, the world, the uh, Tour de France guys, they needed to have their saddle. The minimum length needed to be 240 millimeters. And so I said, well, let's make this saddle right at 240. 
And, and the goal was actually to make it as a time trial saddle. And we were working around some of the rules associated with time trialing. Mm-hmm. The saddle has to be in a very specific place in space. And to make that better, we had to make the saddle shorter. So that's where it, the short saddle actually came from. And the way we put mm. the, the angles and the way we tried to align the pelvis on this particular saddle, because if you think about time trialing, you're really rotated forward, right? You're really over the front end of the bike. And that really changes how your pelvis is. Mm-hmm. And so what I tried to do was mimic the human anatomy there. There's something from the sit bones that come forward. The part of the bone that comes forward is called the inferior pubic rami. And this part of the bone um, is where you sit more when you're on a time trial bike versus way back on your sit bones. Okay. So, yeah. The difference between mountain biking is is we tend to be rotated more back and with you know to the other extreme is time trialing where we're rotated really far forward. So I tried to mimic that and to mimic that we needed to widen the cutout a little bit because obviously if your pelvis is rotated really far forward, that means your your soft tissue, your genitalia is really down towards the saddle. So we needed to make sure that mm-hmm. the angles were, were were appropriate enough for the contact the bone and the cutout was large enough to to um, make that a little bit easier. And so that's where that short saddle actually came from is, is from that whole process of creating that. And what happened was more and more people started riding it and we knew we had something that was working out really well because, Hey, all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's working out. And I, and I don't think it's a gender (laughs) disparity. I think that, that both men and women uh, enjoy that shorter saddle because it gets the nose out of the way. Mm, Right. The the people that don't like the shorter saddle are the people that like to move around more on the saddle. So they like to scooch way up on the nose um, and get a a flatter perch. Um, they like to you know slide back. And one of the things that the trends in mountain biking that I'm seeing is I'm seeing less of the type of individual that person that wants to move around on the saddle. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a combination of new mountain bike geometry getting the seat tube angle steep enough that we're, you know, over the mm-hmm. pedals that were planted in one spot, all of a sudden that rider, you know, in the, in the past where the, at a slacker seat tube angle, you know, they would slide way forward on the nose. Now they don't need to because the seat tube angle is where it needs mm-hmm. to be. And then when we're descending, we're using our dropper posts and, when we're, and, and the seat's out of the way. So we're not so worried about that. We just need that one powerful place to, to climb up the steep hill and find comfort so I think we're seeing mm-hmm. less of the of the rider that needs to really be mobile on the on the saddle fore and aft, and that's where the short saddles provide a, a nice home or a nice plant uh, place to sit and be comfortable. Yeah, that's that's a really fascinating story to understand where that comes from because, yeah, like us like I said, I assume that maybe came from like um, like you're saying geometry changes and the fact that we have dropper posts now kind of makes it so that we can get the saddle height at least um, exactly where we want it, whether we're climbing or descending. And yeah, so do you think if there weren't these, you know, regulations in terms of the minimum length, I mean, is is even shorter better? I mean, would that, is that something you looked at or or have tested? Well, I have tested it. Um, I don't know that shorter is necessarily better it's kind of a good sweet spot. I mean, you could probably shorten it by five or six mils and be okay. The trouble is, 
you know, the, the shapes of the saddles, there's a, some discussion about noseless saddles and those types of things. Obviously, if you have don't have a saddle with a nose, then there's nothing to compress on the soft tissue. Mm-hmm. And so it can be really comfortable. But what's the function of the nose? So that the nose actually, the nose of the saddle is actually uh, an important piece for steering and handling your bike. If you've ever ridden a noseless saddle, uh, especially, you know, this is with a, without a dropper post, but gone down a, a mountain pass on a, on a noseless saddle, it's pretty sketchy. Uh, you, you steer a lot with your hips and you use the feedback of the saddle to help you steer the bike. Mm-hmm. With mountain biking, it's a little bit different and the descending characteristics, but even the flat and pedaling and, and you, you, are contacting the saddle and you're using the nose a little bit for proprioception to see where the back end of the of the bike is you know a lot of the downhill racers i've worked with um both troy gwynn and or aaron gwynn and troy brosnan and both of them like to run the saddle and a lot of downhill saddles a little bit nose high even though their saddles are way down they run the nose of the saddle up because they're actually contacting it with their thighs and their legs and they're feeling out where the back end of the bike is through the nose of the saddle. So the nose does provide some feedback to the rider as to what the bike's doing. And if you get rid of that, it, 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 it it's definitely a different, how, different ride. So we want to make sure that you know mm-hmm. riders are still experiencing the bike the way they want to and then handling their bikes appropriately and, and that kind of stuff. So this, I think we do need a nose. So getting it too short would, would be challenging because then we wouldn't have enough seating area to just plant the rider. Yeah. Well, one of the things I'm hearing from a number of folks these days is that they're, they're tired of wearing chamois for biking, specifically mountain biking. You know, there's various other things, wool underwear, I guess that people are trying or things like that. But I'm curious to know, are saddles designed under the assumption that, that we're going to be wearing a chamois? Like, is there any kind of interaction in terms of saddle and chamois design that you're aware of? I have looked at this in the past and it's, it's tough because, you know, the chamois obviously are so variable and what is the purpose of a, of a chamois? I've actually done a lot of pressure mapping and that's one of the things I do quite a bit, um, in is pressure mapping saddles, pressure mapping riders, pressure mapping. And I've looked at, at what is the effect of the chamois between, um, in that whole system. And the chamois provides a little bit of padding, but that's really all it does. It doesn't provide uh, much more than that. It doesn't provide any support. All of the support basically comes out of the base of the saddle. So that's kind of the most critical thing, okay. getting getting the shape of the base right, and then the level of padding on top of that. Now, do you need a ton of, of padding? Usually not. It all depends upon what you're doing with with that saddle and how you're riding your bike, right? So if you're going on uh, shorter rides and actually shorter, more intense rides, you need less padding. So if you think about, oh, I'm going to do a lunch ride where I'm going to go out for 45 minutes and I'm going to hammer, I'm going to go really hard. that's the situation you actually need probably the least amount of padding because Hmm. you're, you know, physics, every force is an equal and opposite force. If you're pushing down on the pedals, you're actually elevating yourself off the saddle a little bit. 
And if you're riding really, if you're pushing hard, you're, you're not sitting in the saddle very hard at all. Conversely, the, the hardest thing you can do where you need the most padding is a long, slow trainer ride. So if you're just seated in the saddle, not pushing very hard, the bike isn't moving underneath you, and you're un, you're sitting, you know, and it, basically the bike's locked in a trainer, and you're just planting there, you know, wintertime base miles, that's really hard on your sit bones. That's really hard on your saddle pressures. So you can choose a, a chamois, you can choose a padding level of of saddle that's appropriate to what activity that you're doing or what you typically like to do. So if you're, again, the, the person that goes out and rides hard for a short period of time, you could choose a, a really thin layer of padding because you're not really needing that much padding. Whereas if you're, if you're doing the long rides, three to four hour grinds up fire roads, you know, then you want to choose a saddle maybe with a little bit more padding so that you're not getting that chafing and that rawness that can happen by uh, just being heavy planted on the saddle. Yeah. Interesting. Well, this question sort of gets at, um, the founding of WTB and, and sort of the initial foray into saddles. Um, but I know a lot of people wonder, are mountain bike saddles really all that different from road saddles? And if someone has like a road saddle that, that they enjoy on the road bike, it feels good, fits them well. Is there anything wrong with running that on a mountain bike? So the, there is slight differences between the two, but the caveat to, the, to that to me is always, is it comfortable, right? And, and once you find the saddle that works for you, my suggestion is to put it on all your bikes. doesn't matter what bike it is because your pelvis doesn't okay. know, your pelvis doesn't know what's underneath your tires, right? Your pelvis only knows what it's <laughs> interacting with. It doesn't know that there's dirt. It doesn't know that there's pavement underneath your tires. So it's, it's really mm -hmm. specific to pelvic, to pelvic anatomy. And there's so much variability there, you know, that once you find one that works, I, I would, I would hesitate to stray for it from it because you know what works, right? Lots of people have lots of problems when they do that. But that being said, there are, there are, some variances, mountain biking environment tends to be uh, a little bit more abusive, a little bit more rocky and bumpy. Gravel can certainly get that way as well. We can get a lot more bumpy, rocky type of, uh, of impacts. So we, a little bit more padding than a pure pavement-oriented saddle helps. You know, that's good. Also having the, the things to help protect a saddle in a crash, obviously in a road bike, you know, crashes are, are way more detrimental there. You're hitting pavement, you're hitting hard stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but they happen a little bit less frequently, I think, in mountain biking. We tend to, mm -hmm. we tend to crash right. a little bit more, so we want to make sure we're protecting there. And, mm -hmm. and, yeah, just having a little bit extra padding generally helps in that environment. But the other, you know, the other difference is that we're not so planted on the saddle for hours on an end. We go for a, a gravel ride or a road ride. You know, we can... We can be seated in that saddle for three to four hours without moving around. Whereas on a mountain bike, you know, we're going to, we're going to do that way on the climb on the part, on the parts that we need to generate the power. But then when it comes time for descending, we drop the saddle, we get it out of the way. So we're not as just kind of fixed into one spot for uh, the duration uh, that we would in more of a drop bar experience, you know, road or gravel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it almost sounds as if the ideal thing is to 
it's to pick like a Volt. I mean, if that's the saddle that, that you find fits you well and put it on a road bike. I mean, it almost sounds easier to go put a, a mountain bike saddle on a road bike. Um, and then maybe, maybe you try different rails or, or different configurations, but keeping sort of that same shape um, is probably going to be the best for most people. It can. It absolutely can help out quite a bit. The overall position can be a little bit different. And I think, you know, some people in their drop bar, gravel bar, gravel bike, hopefully it's it's not a crazy different position in terms of their their mm-hmm. where their upper body is reaching and dropping to the handlebars. That can influence the, the, the saddle a little bit. But in general, if you find a, a saddle that works for you, I would I would recommend putting it on all your bikes and then, yeah, maybe finding a, if you, if you want a, a little bit more comfortable ride than choosing a, a different base or a different uh, rail configuration that gives you a little bit more flex characteristic. Yeah. Cool. Well, we kind of hit on some of the recent uh, saddle design changes that we've seen over the last few years, you know, starting with shorter saddles, um, which you helped to bring to mountain biking. Um, another one that comes to mind is e-bike specific saddles. I'm seeing some of those on the market where it's a little bit more scooped. What are some of the saddle design changes that you're seeing over the past few seasons and, and what's driving those changes? Well, the e-bike market is still, uh, it's growing, obviously. I still need to do a lot more research in this. There's thoughts that it's a different rider, that it's bringing different people to the market. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, being a scientist at heart, I want to see a lot more hard research that shows this. Uh, because when, yeah. I'm out ri- when I'm out riding, my own anecdotal evidence is that uh, it's not really a different rider. It's just a different experience of the same riders. So, um, you know, I, I want to see, I want to see that, that it truly is different. Now, why would that be different? Well, okay. We've got much heavier bikes for sure. Mm-hmm. So, so the saddles need to be a little bit more durable. You know, things are a lot hitting, hitting obstacles with a little bit more momentum mass because of the power involved with a, with a mm-hmm. e-bike riders can stay a little bit seated more than they would in a, uh, analog bike, um, or an acoustic bike, if you want to call it. So the, the, <laughs> so, you know, if you can imagine like stuff on your, on your, your analog bike, if you, if you're pedaling along and you come into a rock garden with, uh, a regular bike or an acoustic bike, you might stand up to power through that. Whereas an e-bike, because of the additional power, you can just stay seated and plow through that stuff, which then mm-hmm. is a little bit more demand on the saddle. You can, you can, you know, be impacting the saddle by impacting those rocks um, and pedaling through them. So we need to make the saddles a little bit more durable, a little bit, uh, you know, thicker, a little bit stiffer in that situation depends upon the position of the riders. So a lot of times they will be a little bit more contoured because that rider is sitting back a little bit more, you know, kind of slouching if you will, because they don't need, you know, remember what I talked about before tilting the pelvis, recruiting the glutes, they don't need to do that as much. Right. So that can be a little bit more of a contoured, a contoured saddle rider. They can kind of sit back, relax, you know, relax their pelvis. They don't have to arch forward and put their, you know, chin right over their stem and, and they can still get that same amount of power to get up the, the hill. So 
So it tends to be a little bit more contoured experience. It tends to be a little bit more padded, and hopefully, uh, they're they're making those saddles uh, a little bit a little bit thicker, a little bit stronger to help some of that uh, impact. Yeah, interesting. Well, are there other design changes that you're seeing for the future in terms of how people are using saddles or the types of trails they're riding or the bikes that they're riding um, that that could perhaps see improved designs? So I think material selection is really becoming uh, an interesting thing. We're seeing a lot of cool stuff with uh, 3D printing. So, you know, obviously we've seen a, a big push of that from a couple of companies out there that we're not really seeing them yet for mountain bike saddles, seeing more on the roads, road side of things. But the 3D printing offers a really cool way to tune the flex characteristic and the padding characteristic out of the out of the the saddle so if you think about foam you could do most of them are single density you might have a dual density but it's kind of a broad brush stroke of of tuning that foam characteristic whereas with 3d printing now you have almost infinite level of adjustment of where do i want this to be soft and where do i want this pad to be thick and stiff and you can actually tune it and this is the cool part to me you can tune it like you tune your not actively but you can tune it pre-production like you tune a suspension right so you can have like the initial part where you sit on the on the saddle mm-hmm. and thinking about depth now going from top to bottom you could have the first part kind of soft and then as you get towards the bottom of the foam or or 3d print type of material you can have it stiffen up so it's almost like a, a progressive rate, like a suspension, but you could actually build that into your, into your flex of your saddle. Hmm, wow. And you couldn't do that before. So there's some, that's some pretty cool cutting edge stuff that's, that's happening. And of course, uh, it's going to take a while for that to get actually at a price point that's affordable for a lot of riders. Cause that's a, yeah. it's a, it's a pretty neat stuff, but yeah, really working on, you know, base materials and changing and tuning that that flex characteristic and really opening people's eyes as to the, what the saddle does in terms of that ride characteristic of what you're looking for and that you can ride the same set type saddle, but then change, get it, get it in a different rail material or something like that. And it'll actually change or a different padding level. So some, some companies, you know, we've got some saddles that have our, you know, standard pad versus our DNA pad and they ride very differently, mm-hmm. even though it's the same saddle. So realizing that that's a, that's an option and being able to experience that is key. Uh, and opening riders' eyes to that it's not just a saddle that you just throw on or, or just, you know, take whatever saddle came on your bike, but realizing that there's some options there and it can really influence how you ride your bike. Yeah. Well, one last question I want to ask you is one that maybe is on some people's minds after listening to this and getting a better understanding of saddles. But what are some signs that it's time for a new saddle or maybe a different model of saddle? Well, number one is comfort, right? So number one is if you're experiencing a numbness, any numbness in that region shouldn't be tolerated. So that should be like number one. If I, if Mm -hmm. you're going numb, time, time to look at a different saddle. 
or at least have it have it evaluated. Yeah. If the saddle had worked for you, and, and I think this is an, an important thing to think about, saddles can change over time, meaning the the pads can break down, the base mm-hmm. can take a, a, a set where it actually starts to get more and more flex and flexible over time. You know, I would say if you're if you're at a saddle, if your saddle's over three or four years and you're riding a lot, it's probably time because there's the padding that has probably broken down and and is not as uh, as soft and as squishy as it could be. Ski boots, r- r- people have a problem with this all the time, where the ski boot material packs out, and what mm-hmm. felt good two years later now feels sloppy. And the same thing can happen in in any sort of foam situation, as well as the bases. So the bases can get more and more flexible. There's, uh, you know, lots of riders I've worked with in the past had a saddle that worked for them perfectly. And then two years later, they're saying, oh, I'm going numb now. I don't get it. And then I measure the saddle and it's um, it's sway backed like an old horse, whereas the middle is just sagged right out. So, so keeping an eye on that is definitely a, a good indicator. Um, and obviously any sort of damage is, is going to be a, an indicator that it needs a new one. But, but generally you'd be surprised how, how much these saddles wear and the, the more expensive saddles actually wear less, right? So if you've got a, a nylon base or a glass filled nylon base, or certainly a carbon fiber base, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to wear out. It's really the kind of the entry level, the the polypropylene bases where, you know, four or five years of, of a lot of riding, all of a sudden they're looking a little bit more sagged than they should have. And then they're, they're not holding their shape as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great advice. And some I'm sure most of us don't think about because it is, you know, like you said, over time, your saddle changes in terms of the foam getting compressed and, you know, maybe even flexing in new and different ways. And so, um, yeah, we don't tend to notice it until, you know, it's sometimes it's been years and we're like, what's going on with this saddle? But yeah, maybe yeah. just be time for a new one. Yep. Yep. That's great. Well, Sean, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, obviously you're a tremendous resource on the topic and I know I've learned a ton hearing, uh, you talk about saddles and I'm going to need to listen to this one at least a couple more times, I think, to get everything out of it. So thank you again for taking the time. Awesome. Been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, you can get more information about some of the WTB saddles that we talked about uh, by visiting WTB.com. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.